We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think.
Okay, take two. Can anybody hear us now? I'm just waiting for uh, some confirmation from people in the chat room that we are. Okay, there's sound. Okay, so we're going to take it from the top once again. Imagine you heard the okay. intro music and... <laughs> I hi, hi, and welcome to Thought Talk Radio. This week we're talking about the possible very near future. What do we mean by that? Well, it's along the lines of impending economic collapse, global food shortages and famine, a planet frozen by sudden glacial rebound, widespread illness from comet-borne viruses, societal breakdown from bloody revolution, psychopaths in power waging wars to kill, maim, or terrorize us into a state of distraction. Now, all of that doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world, but it certainly looks like we're in a time of great change, one way or another. The point here is that when we see things happening over and over again throughout history, the same things happening over and over again throughout history, it becomes pretty clear that the point is not to try and stop it from happening, but to be aware that it is happening. While mass mass death may be on the cards, those who are prepared, like the wise virgins, have the best chance of surviving and building a new and different future. So, are we all wise virgins here? Wise? Maybe. Maybe, okay. <laughs> but Pierre's speaking for himself there. <laughs> uh, but I'd just like to introduce uh, who we have in the studio. Andrew Quinn, obviously. Uh, Neil, uh, with me is Neil Bradley. Hello, listeners. Uh, Juliana Barenboim. Hello. And as you just heard, Pierre Lescotron. Bonjour. So that is what we were talking about this week. And Yeah, and you mentioned a... One important point is the perspectives, because to be ready, first you have to know where you are heading to. And um, the answer is not definitive. We don't have crystal balls. But um, Joe mentioned several possible perspectives. They can set on quickly. They can set on progressively. They're not mutually exclusive. One perspective that is pretty certain is an economic collapse. An ice age is also possible epidemics because of airborne viruses and cometary events with all their subsequent uh, effects like increased earthquakes, volcanic activities, and electromagnetic pulse. Now, <clears throat> whatever the second sequence of events is, our modern civilization is highly dependent on technologies and is highly fragile. It is not a resilient system of production and consumption because in the first world, 98% of the people are not food producers, are not farmers. Most production sites are remote. You rely on big production factories for your supplies. You rely on mass transportation for for the supplies to reach the consumption centers. And um, because of profit maximization, all those Kanban and other logistics management uh, techniques, most producers have zero stock. So one single sand pebble in the clog and the old machine can stop. Let me give one example, the grid, the electric grid. Today, if the grid stops, there's no more electricity, I mean, there's no more pump, there's no more water, no more running water, no more communication system, no more internet, no more phones, no more economic activity. Everything gets frozen because of one component, electricity. 
and the grid is very sensitive. If you have major snowfalls, the lines fall down. If you have an electromagnetic pulse induced by a weapon or more likely induced by an incoming asteroid, the grid goes down. If you have floods, the grid goes down. And then what we're going to talk today is how can we face, can we face at best those possibilities, knowing that the objective, from what I understand, is not to survive like animals, but is to have a, a decent life a human life during those hard times. Yeah, and I think it's um, important to emphasize that whatever combination of events happen, in a way, what they all lead to is economic collapse. Now, people will say, well, flooding, heavy snowfall, all those things happen all the time, and it's localized, and system gets back online. You might have to wait a couple of weeks or more but if you've been noticing that this is happening more and more often, like we have, it becomes apparent that the system is fragile, as Pierre said, and it can only take so many shocks before it cannot get back up again, at least not in the way that we're used to, and for the numbers that we currently need to feed. I mean, the planet's population continues to grow, and yet food production has dropped in the last three years at least, there have been major crop failures because of environmental uh, impacts. And you've got countries importing where previously they were net exporters and already we see the headlines, food prices rising, you know, it's hitting the shelves and people are starting to notice it. So it gets to a point, in fact, people have done studies on this where there's a threshold where uh, there's a mass social unrest that breaks out, revolution. And it's at that point that the economy is not functioning as usual and you are not able to rely on just being able to go into the store to feed yourself for the next day and so on. So at the very least, we're talking from where we can see now, you're looking at the medium term where you, you, you already are being forced by your environment to adapt. Whatever about the worst case scenario and everything's the grid is off altogether. Already, people must be thinking about, okay, in the next six months, what would I do? Do I have enough food right now? Yeah, and uh, whatever the sequence of event is, basically, the key point is to increase your autonomy. And uh, autonomy around uh, maybe five key factors. There's food, there's water, energy, shelter, and uh, health, don't forget any. And safety, uh, we'll discuss that. It's a tricky topic, but uh, I guess we will address it uh, in the current show. So you have to increase your autonomy in those fields particularly. Increasing your autonomy, it's, um, let's discard from the, from the get-go some uh, widespread ideas about survivalism. It's not so much about money, buying fancy gizmos and uh, uh, storing up uh, tons and tons of uh, material. It's not about uh, becoming a lunar survivalist in the forest. It's not about using a mobile home with limited resources and uh, shining like a beacon, screaming, uh, loot me, loot me, to the ones who stare at the road and see that there's no more fuel. Um, the two key points from what we understand is uh, A, skills, developing skills. Because there's no point having uh, um, 
having guns if you don't know how to hunt. There's no point having food if you don't know how to store it. There's no point having medicine if you don't know how to administer it. So skill is a prime factor to increase not only survival rate, but quality of life during those hard times. And the second point is network. Network because alone, psychologically, is more difficult, and one single person is not able to to do all the tasks and to have all the skills that are required to live in uh, almost full autonomy. Because we are so dis- actually today we are very disconnected from a real world. We don't know how to produce food. We don't know how to repair a car. We don't know how to uh, sew clothes, produce clothes. We are like children assisted by the consumption society, and we've lost our autonomy, our skills. So we have to rega- regain these uh, um, these skills. Well, hang on. Now, the pair of you there are talking like a couple of preppers, you know, um, <laughs> like you're waiting for doomsday no. or something. And uh, I mean, as one of our listeners just uh, wrote in uh, on the chat, said that um, he said, hang on a minute. Uh, hasn't our media and the government told us in the last few days that global warming caused by humans is, a, is, a, is the most pressing concern and um, if we can deal with that then the future looks rosy and bright. Oh boy. That is a complete sideshow. If you look at what they're saying, they're throwing off projections 100 years into the future yeah. about coastal flooding that will gradually happen as the planet gradually rises. The scenario has no bearing on reality. The reality is that weather extremes are happening now and they, they they flux from within an hour range, but there's a point where that uh, we've seen in the geological record. There's a point where those extremes don't they snap, and and there's a new threshold reach, and that's for example how ice ages form. They are completely. It's 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 really annoying actually because on the one hand they they do alarm people, and that could be a service you know like, hello warning get prepared things are happening but. It's also, first of all, here's an alarm bell, and I go back to sleep. It's 100 years from now. Mm. Well, first of all, here's an alarm bell, and the, alarm's, the alarm is going off because, it's, uh, because of you. It's what you're doing. Um, when the truth is almost 180 degrees from that, it's more like the alarm is really sounding, and things are happening on the planet because of what people are not doing. But they've turned it around and said it's because of what you are doing. I, you're emitting. You're a bunch of deadly gas emitters, you know, uh, like Al Gore, and um, and you need to stop doing that. And if you stop doing it, if we all stop doing it collectively, like one big happy family, um, then we can stop all of these crazy weather patterns and floods and fires. Yeah. And supposedly, they don't mention it, I think, explicitly, but supposedly, because in amongst that mix of, I mean, they just talk about climate change, but... As you're saying, along with the climate change, you're seeing uh, earth, can be described as earth change, you're seeing volcanic eruptions on a much increased scale. Um, you're seeing, you know, sinkholes, tornadoes. And a lot of fireballs in the sky. And, and the big one, fireballs in the sky. And they're all happening together, but it's reduced down to mere climate. It's just basically the weather. It's hot and cold. It's yeah. rain and sun. And it's due to one factor. Snow. One factor, carbon dioxide produced by having too many people consuming too much. And here's our to-do list of how to deal with it. Mm. Buy a more fuel-efficient car. Mm. And pay taxes. Um, 
pay more taxes. If you pay us more taxes, we'll deal with it. Yeah, pay more taxes. The way there's a scam going on there. Well, I think I think the whole global warming, the CO2, the increase in in CO2 in the atmosphere, is actually a vegetarian conspiracy. (laughs) More CO2, more plants. I think there are a bunch of vegetarian terrorists. but. I think there are a bunch of vegetarian <laughs> terrorists around because the result of more CO2 over the past, you know, 30 years in the atmosphere has been a vast increase in in greenery and plants mm-hmm. growing in places that they never grew before because CO2 in the atmosphere encourages plant growth. And people uh, who I'm, I'm implying qui bono here who benefits from that? Nature. But a bunch of but a bunch of veg, vegetable eaters and, and plant eaters. Yeah, and who is more flatulent? The plant eaters or the meat eaters? Well, there you go. I mean, obviously, yeah, vegetarians. That's a vicious feedback loop right there. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it is. But but it, they want it that way because by doing that, they're producing more vegetables so they can eat more vegetables. So I'm, I think this is a bit of a scoop. I've just stumbled on here. It's an expose of uh, of the real conspiracy behind uh, global warming. Yes. Any takers? Warming is a, is a great thing, actually, but it's unusual. When you look at historic records, the default setting weather settings for our planet is ice age. And in between long-lasting ice ages, you have short periods of relative warming. And those short periods of relative warming coincide with the short periods of uh, empire developments. And at the end of the global warming, the empires collapse. That's the main driver of civilization development. We are this dependent on the weather and the planet, although we might think differently. Okay, well, let's be honest here that what we're saying here is only a theory. We have no hard evidence. There is no hard evidence in the historical record that yeah. just because the weather has gone kaflui and there are all sorts of earth changes, as we mentioned, that that, that doesn't necessarily mean that indeed there are anything pa- seriously yeah. bad is going to happen. Oh no, no. It could flip back to normal, normal, normalcy, right afterwards. We, future is open. But what we can say is, indeed, there is a series of there are different kinds of events. We mentioned them: noctilucent clouds, global dimming, cometary activities, sinkholes, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, hurricanes, tornadoes, cooling. All those factors are on the increase. They all seem to be due to the same cause. While the mainstream media describe them as unrelated, harmless, and uh, uh, due, due to unexplained or due to human activity, or events that happen once in a life, lifetime. Yes, yeah, century, uh, yeah. flood of the century, perhaps every year. We, we uh, but uh, uh, just to uh, about the IPCC. Well, hang on, before you get into that, we have a call. So let's I go. think that that might take you a while to uh, to get into. Hi. Uh, I'm just listening. What's I'm your name? Listening. What are you calling? You're just listening? Uh, oh, my name. Is... Go ahead. I'm just ahead. listening. I'm just listening. All right. All okay, right. you have to call in to listen, is that it? Yes, I do. Okay. okay. I, don't have well, inter- I, don't have, I don't have internet access. I don't have internet access, so I'm just listening over okay. my phone. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. No problem. Well, you can just hang on there, and if you uh, you can interject at any point if you feel you need to say yeah. something. Yeah, you're welcome. Do. All right. Sure, thanks. All right. Carry on, Pierre. Yeah, simply about the IPCC, the last report in 2007 um, was stating, according to different models, it was projecting an increase in temperature, global temperature, over the years after 2007 
and records, official records from the official weather stations shows a decrease in temperature. That's one of the reasons why the new IPCC reports mentions temperature projections and temperature increase occurring at the end of this century in 80 years. So this way, they can be cornered and nobody can say, but look, you projected a temperature increase five years ago and actually temperature decreased. So it's a good way to, uh, to get rid of Explain that again. In 2007, the IPCC, in its official report written by like 200 scientists. You're written by bureaucrats. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> scientists, quote-unquote. Yeah. Uh, and maybe corrupted scientists. Um, they projected temperature evolution. And according to the project... Temperature evolution? Yeah. Evolution of global temperature. An increase. In no. that projection, there was an increase. Depending yeah. on the model, it was between 0.2 and 0.5 degrees increase. They predicted from 2007 until... Until, the next, until 2012 and more. Okay. Curves going up. Okay. okay. So you have this curve going up. Depending on the models, they go up more or less. But during this 2007-2012 period... 2007-2012. Yeah. You've had weather stations measuring temperature. Mm-hmm. So you've had real measured global temperature. Mm-hmm. And what does the data show? The data shows that the temperature has been decreasing between 2007, 2007. 2007 and 2012. Well, there's all sorts of different snapshots you can take. Uh, you know, different different people, different bodies uh, take different snapshots over different you know different lengths of time. But the most recent report uh, from the IPCC, which was written essentially by Western governments, um, admitted that the, in the last 15 or 16 years, from 1997 or 1998 yeah. until yeah. today, there has been very little change, very little warming, maybe 0.1 or 2 of a degree between uh, 2002, for example, and 2012. There's not very much change at all when they had predicted uh, a greater increase. So basically, they're calling yeah. it a pause. Yeah, but, but they're dismissing this pause. You, you notice what you said. Uh, since 2000, uh, 1997, but actually, since 1997 until 2002, you have an increase, and then it goes down. Mm-hmm. So by using 2000, uh, 1997 as a starting point, they can claim there is an increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is well, an increase course, since yeah. 1997, but since 2005, 2000. 2003, there is a constant decrease. It means for 10 years, global temperature. Yeah. I'm not talking about freezer data here. Yeah. I'm talking about the official measured uh, temperature coming from the weather station mm-hmm. used by the IPCC. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the hot, hot facts. But it's been decreasing for 10 years. Well, yeah. what's funny is that they try now they're trying to make it sound Almost. like it's an exception or a little uh, a sort <clears throat> of pause or break or something that where temperatures go down before the heat starts really climbing up. So they're they're actually using the reverse logic of what it's known to have happened in history, which is there's a peak, there's a period of years where temperature rises to then fall drastically and quite quickly. Yeah. But if you read the newspapers nowadays, they're like, well, no, you know, it's just it, we just had a long winter because, you know, it's a normal step towards global warming. And by the way, it's all your fault, and all you have to do is stop using sprays. And, and pay us some more money. And, and those scientists and bureaucrats for years now have been hammering their hockey stick theory. 
you will all remember this curve. Temperature is increasing slowly, and all of a sudden it picks up forever until ad infinitum. It's not the reality for 10 years, almost 10 years, temperature has been consistently going down according to official well, data. But only gradually, but in an overall increase in temperature, temperatures over the past 60 or 70 years. Pardon? In an overall within. They may have gone down recently, but that's within an overall increase True. in temperature and also True. in carbon uh, yeah. CO2. Concentration. Concentration in the atmosphere. Yeah. So when people talk about the global warming scam, it's not to say that there has been no warming or that there is not an increase in CO2 in our atmosphere. There is. Yeah. And it has theoretically coincided with indust the industrial era, let's say over the, over the 20th century, over most of the 20th century. That, but that, the problem with that is that simply because two things coincide does not mean that there's a causal effect. Exactly. And especially that within that if you're going to claim that CO2, man-made or human-produced uh, emissions are the result of increasing temperatures or increasing CO2 or both, um, then you have to stick with it and accept that everybody, or, or allow for everybody expecting that temperatures will continue to increase as more and more people are on the planet, as more and more cars are produced, as more and more emissions uh, are, are produced by, by industry then the temperature, CO2 and the temperature should continue to increase and increase. But that the whole problem here is that in the last 15 years, the temperature has not been incre increasing in the way that it should if humans are responsible for it. No, you know, it's like... I, I have seen data that shows as temperatures declined at the end of the medieval warm period, CO2 levels increased and they identify the source of it, the oceans. Yes. Yeah. There is a, actually there is a correlation, as you mentioned, between CO2 level and global temperature. That's true. You look at the historical records over tens of thousands of years. When CO2 goes up, temperature goes up. However, you see that there is a, a timing difference, and seemingly it's not CO2 that causes temperature. It is temperature that causes CO2 because the main reservoir of CO2 is oceans. When the temperature is high, ocean release CO2. When temperature goes down, there's less release, CO2 goes down. There's nothing, there's no, no, nothing man-made, nothing anthropogenic here. Yeah. I mean, you, you see this global warming, you have seen this global warming going on on planets that are yeah. not inhabited. Well, that's the thing. The thing is, the, the main hole in their, or their flaw in, in the global warming theory is that this has happened. Temperatures have risen and decreased throughout the t tens of thousands of years of human history when there was very few human beings on the planet and certainly no cars or factories polluting the atmosphere. So to turn around and say that just because we live in an industrialized age, then we have a lot of CO2, or well, actually the official level of emissions from human beings has been set at 4%, but even allowing for that that actually has some kind of drastic effect, as some scientists claim that straw breaks the camel's back type thing, that extra 4%, um, even allowing for that, uh, you can't claim that you, you can't di dissociate the fact that temperatures have risen and fallen throughout history when there were no there was no industrialized civilization on the planet, and simply say that just because it's happening when there is an industrialized civilization, 
that it must be due to humans when the historical record shows that it goes up and down anyway. I mean, surely by logic you would say, well, hang on, we can't say that it's us because it has gone up and down when we weren't here. And as you said, nine main CO2 is 4% of total emitted CO2, but in addition, CO2 is only 3% of total greenhouse gases. The main one is being water vapor. So it means that man-made CO2 is 0.12%, 3% of 4% of the total greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. Mm. Peanuts. Mm. Compared to much more important drivers, yeah, like me- an obvious one, the sun activity. That is uh, surprisingly, coincidentally, uh, amazingly low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you look at, when you watch videos of Al Gore, who is probably the, the, the main proponent of, of global warming and has been for a couple of decades, when you watch him speaking about this, uh, you really get the impression that he has an agenda. He's pushing it and he wants people to believe him and he's using all sorts of uh, manipulation, emotion manipulation, and even, you know, recently calling, subtly calling for people who deny global warming to be in some way penalized or prosecuted. He didn't use those words, but he said that a price should be put on people denying the reality of global warming. I mean, that guy is totally not being objective, not being reasonable, not being rational about the situation, especially, I mean, you get the impression that he wants to distract people. He wants to shove people's noses into the, into the dirt. He wants to stick people's noses ostrich style into the, uh, into the ground, put their heads in the ground, for this and keep them looking at and keep them believing in the idea that we are responsible for this, we have to do something, we have to take responsibility for it and act because if we do, we can change it. And he's ignoring, as we mentioned earlier, all of the associated uh, elements that go along with mere climate change, flooding and fire and lots of snow or lots of heat or lots of cold all of the other things, sinkholes, volcanoes, earthquakes, typhoons, tornadoes. Trumpet sounds. Trumpet sounds in the sky and, and, a, and, a startling in, and a startling increase in, in comet activity because, or fireball and meteorite activity in our skies because if you look at the, if you, uh, people who are listening, search, Google the American Meteorite Society and look at their list. And this is just an American, and this is an official, fairly reputable organization that tracks uh, reports and keeps reports of meteorites, and they have data going back to 2005. It's not official, uh, but it's, it's well, well organized. No, but it's fairly well organized. Yeah. There's no reason these are official reports. They have documented reports of people who yeah. have sent them in and said, and, and from 2005 to 2000 to today, mm-hmm. there have been there's been a stark increase, almost doubling year and year since 2005. Yeah. But in the last year, it's doubled. It has doubled from 6,000 some. Just last year, 2012, 6,000 reports in the U.S. alone to over 12,000 as of today. And the year is not over. And so, it's amazing that they get away with this because what you were saying about Al Gore, how did he manage to do that and how do people really believe it? I think it's just because people, one, forget about history. So nobody's looking at what happened in the past and said, well, you know, there was an increase before there was a decrease in temperature. or It happened before, so it's not human-made and stuff. There's that factor that we forget history. Then there's the fear factor, and there's the fact that people are made to believe, well, it's kind of risky and dangerous, but you still have 80 years to live this, so don't worry too much. 
and it's actually your fault. So you need the government to protect you, to charge mm-hmm. you more taxes. And stuff. So it's all the whole battery of, you know, one manipulation after the other to actually take people away from the real events that are not controlled by by human beings and can't be like fireballs, mm-hmm. floods and stuff. And it, it just keeps going and going and going. And the same thing with survival and stuff. You know, there's the people who will panic and really not be based on reality. Uh, of what the situation is, yeah. and people who will not prepare at all because they're like, well, who's go- who has to worry? You know, our grandchildren children will live to see it. And the way they prepare is the wrong way because of this um, global warming scam. They're buying air conditioners instead of buying wood burning stoves yeah. and solar panels. That never <laughs> ceases to amaze me. Um, speaking of surviving. Well, if you were to start with practicals, I mean, you, you, you've given the list. We're, let's let's start with that one. Fuel, I mean, that's energy. Energy. Yeah. That's something that that gets knocked out. Um, well, hang on. Why don't we break it down to scenarios? Okay. And what what survival or what uh, what would be necessary? What 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 do we think are the most likely scenarios or possible scenarios? The most plausible scenarios in the near future. We're not saying that all at once, you know, the entire planet's going to be destroyed because then there's no need for any survival, right? We're, we're presenting the idea of, of various scenarios that are maybe progressive or cumulative or, or happen on a, a progressive basis. So, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about next month they're going to have a test, uh, a blackout. In a drill, yeah. In in the a drill, a blackout drill. It's going to be held simultaneously in Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. Yes. Right. So that scenario, there, there obviously is an Iranian nuke, right? There's an Iranian nuke. Iranian <laughs> high altitude. And or solar, solar flare. flare. Right. In that situation, <laughs> we talked about it a little bit already. In that situation, there's no more electricity. Yeah. What do you need? Okay, so you need some electricity. So what do you do for electricity? Well, if there's no more, that's what I was mentioning before, in order to um, point out the need, whatever perspective is, because one of the weakest points of our whole logistic chain is electricity, the grid. If you have no more electricity, as I say, no more communication, no more transportation, no more water, no more pumps, no more food. So you have to be autonomous in those fields. Um, energy, there are four main ways to produce energy, and if the grid is off, if you want energy, you will have to produce it by yourself. So you can produce it from fuel, generators, you can produce it from air, wind, uh, it's called... Uh, Turbine. Turbine, yeah. Uh, you can produce it from water. It's called... Uh, Hydro. Hydros. And it can pro- be produced uh, from solar panels. It's called solar panels. And, um, well, from our research, well, everything depends on your context. It depends on how much you want to consume, how much energy you want to consume. It depends on the setting around your place. It depends on the natural resource available. Of course, if you're in a very, very windy place, maybe turbine will be interesting. If you are in a place, that's quite ideal, in a place with slope and with a stream uh, um, consistent enough, an hydro is a very good solution. It's very efficient, produces a lot. But for in most cases, if you don't have those obvious energetic resources at hand, the best solution is a generator. So now what is a generator? It's a machine that transforms fuel to combustion into electricity. 
Uh, now there are several kinds of generators. Depending on your needs, you will size accordingly your generator. We strongly suggest that your generator um, should be diesel powered because diesel stores longer than gasoline and uh, it's not flammable and you can use it for other purposes. Uh, your generator should be indoors because otherwise the noise of your generator is very noisy, it generates about 90 decibels, it would attract looters. And also because diesel can freeze. There are two good reasons to put your generators locked indoors. Okay, but on a practical level, most people listening to this probably live in some kind of an urban built-up area. And uh, a diesel-powered generator is probably out of the question for them. So probably the next best, most plausible thing would be a solar, some kind of solar panels that would at least provide a little bit of energy for them to run basic electrical equipment. It really depends on the magnitude of uh, the events that might happen. Um, If the magnitude is relatively high, a urban environment is really not the best place to be in. I'll give you just one example, but amongst many others. First, globally, a city, in a city, you have a lot of consumers, human beings, and you have uh, almost no resources. There's no field, there's no cattle, there's no wildlife. So there will be an intense competition for food. Uh, and one simple uh, example, uh, sewage system in the cities. Uh, say you live in an apartment, second floor, and the sewage system, because there's no more maintenance, no more electricity for pumping, gets clogged. It means the neighbors upstairs, when they drop stuff in the toilet, it will end up flushing back inside your apartment. Um, it means also that all the waste, if there's a kind of economic collapse, you will have waste accumulations in the cities, you will have pest proliferation, you will have more epidemics, and you will have a lot of looting. There's a, here we're not talk, talking about apocalyptic uh, scenarios necessarily, but you have a clear correlation between level of poverty, scarcity of resources, and criminality. So in the city, those uh, phenomena now will be amplified. So if you can try to find a setting away from the cities, and okay. if you have to work in the city, maybe you can develop... A, or at least think about maybe having place. that as a backup, someone exactly. you know, a family member that lives outside the city, that lives somewhere where it's easier to, to provide for yourself in the basic ways. Just think about these things. The whole point, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, was to be aware of these things. At the very least, think about them. Think about kind of plan Bs and you know worst case scenarios and have a plan in mind of what you might do. Don't wait until you're forced to think in a, in a bad situation already. Yeah, because at the very um, at the on worst case scenario, all a lot of things could happen. On the best case scenario, nothing happens. And you still are prepared for any. Yeah, there's nothing any to little, lose. Any, yeah, there's absolutely nothing to lose by having extra things stored away, or you know, having a secondary system for electricity or things like that. Or yeah, like well, you just said, having somebody at a closed network and learning things. Yeah. Learning things is just fun. You know, you don't have to do it well, with a fear of an apocalypse. Pierre mentioned food there. I mean, one idea is, uh, I mean, in the old days, your grandma probably used to can things, you know, canned fruit probably primarily to make preserves or or she might have canned, you know, um, other types of food and canning is quite easy to do 
and that's something where you have absolutely nothing to lose and you also learn a little something about how to how to can food um having it's, extra it's, candles it's not it's oil not, lamps yeah it's not strange so and if nothing happens or you know the world progresses into a wonderful utopia where you know we're all skipping through daisies and you know playing with bunny rabbits well then you know you have that food, you know, it's and, and you know, bought it maybe at a price when it's cheaper. So there's really nothing to lose and everything to gain from from doing that simple thing. And also, like we mentioned, you know, thinking, I mean, if it's within your, um, if if it's within your financial capabilities, look into some kind of a solar, if you live in a city, look into, into some kind of a solar-powered uh, setup for, even if it's just minimal, there's nothing to lose from having that either, really, um, if you can afford it. And also the idea of thinking about who you would go to if you find yourself in a situation where services suddenly are all stopped in a city in an urban environment and things are not very pleasant. And you can look at even recent hurricane examples of people who lived in the aftermath of like Hurricane Sandy last year and Hurricane Katrina, etc. That wasn't a pleasant uh, experience for any of those people involved and in fact it turned out deadly not from the hurricane but even afterwards yeah deadly for some people so they learn just that these are not things that are doomsday prepper you know oh my god armageddon get your guns these are things that are happening right now that that involve the observable uh, earth changes and climate change that has been happening and that are causing uh hardship for have caused hardship for a lot of people and it could come to your doorstep so even on that basis think about what you do in that situation, because it it, it it transfers itself very easily to an even worse situation. And you mentioned that uh, you will buy if you do so storing, canning, you will buy food cheaper. And for several years now, we've noticed a steady increase in uh, raw material price and particular food. So you will buy cheap now or cheaper now, and so you will spend less uh, than buying during the, the in the middle of the crisis, and uh, also. An important point you were mentioning hurricanes and uh, uh, during Hurricane Katrina in 2005, authorities starting seizing guns uh, during World War II, gold was seized. And for centuries during uh, wars, armies were seizing food mm-hmm. from local populations. Mm-hmm. So be discreet about your preparation. Don't advertise that you are storing food, that you are. Uh, getting a generator, mm-hmm. things like that, because if things turn bad, and we're not sure about that, but if it turns bad, you would be a prime candidate for friends, quote-unquote, knocking on your door and uh, asking for some help. How can we square that up with something I think will be important for a lot of listeners? Okay, they're watching what's going on, they're aware, but they don't have the financial resources to meet even their own basic needs. And so it's necessary for them to reach out and communicate and discuss with other people. So on the one hand, you say, let's be discreet about it. But how then do you go about networking? Because that seems to be crucial to not just surviving, but having an enjoyable life. Well, yeah, well no matter if, what the, happens. if the person has no resource, the person cannot disclose the fact that uh, he or she is storing uh, stuff because the person has no resources. But if you have no resources, it's even more important to focus on skills and network. You need a reliable network in order to... Yeah, but Pierre needs asking about how you go about setting up uh, a network. How do you, uh, in terms of being discreet about it, you know, not wanting to advertise the fact that you're 
thinking in any way about preparing for some kind of a scenario? How do you go about finding a network? Well, I would say you just um, put some feelers out, start looking for yeah. start start looking in your community, in your local community, or a little bit further afield uh, for you know I don't know make contacts even with with I mean a, a good place would be like maybe local local food banks that are already set up to yes. feed homeless people. Yeah, the kind of benevolent altruistic organizations that are already set up doing this yeah that 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 have some uh, kind of uh, background training and an understanding of of having to deal with uh, with people in need already and there's plenty of places where you can also volunteer if you have a skill mm-hmm. where you'll meet people who are interested yeah. in, in people not of that mindset yeah they're not just yeah. interested in, in, in making a fast exchanging buck. money yeah. for what they do but they just want to share their skills or learn together there's lots of workshops Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. You don't, have to, right and you don't have to disclose all your prep plan. You just have to join community of like-minded people where you will learn and share skills. Well, not and, uh, community, it's, a, it's a community community uh, where you share same interest for just get leather work or yeah. welding or mm-hmm. mechanics or whatever. There but, are there are a number of... Um, I was just checking online and the, the, there's a preppers network mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. going. I mean... In the U.S., it's actually a long, it's been decades. Mm-hmm. Survivalism, is, it's always been present, you know. But it's very well established, it seems, network from city to city, state to state of people who get together and they have meetups, they have online discussions. Um, there are a lot of people talking about it, a lot of people thinking about it. Uh, you're not alone by any stretch of the imagination. Even if they have... Prepper, what are they called? Doomsday prepper TV shows mm-hmm. that take the, the wackiest of the wackiest mm-hmm. and uh, try to make it all silly and and indeed they do find a few weirdos. But of course there will always be people who have some stupid ideas trying to implement them. But there are a lot of regular people thinking about this, mm-hmm. and it's not that they're thinking about oh the disastrous future that might happen. They're responding to the situation on the ground now. When Hurricane Sandy happened, the government was nowhere to be seen mm-hmm. in terms of helping people materially in the aftermath. Mm-hmm. But the one group that stands out that helped people on the ground mm-hmm. was a local Occupy mm-hmm. movement that was mm-hmm. set up. Yeah. A local branch for New Jersey, I think. And it's interesting that that, people came, out together. Of, that came out of, uh, like you said, the Occupy movement, which was a political movement against the, the, the corrupt the corruption yes. within the political elite and the global elite, and they were very quickly able to turn themselves around because they they formed as a group uh, of ordinary people together against corruption. Mm-hmm. It was just a very a seamless yeah. uh, change for them to just turn around to start help people in need after yeah. uh, Hurricane Sandy. And it's interesting to me to realize that to to think about things in this way, you know, think about economic collapse or, you know, the grid going down or anything like that. You don't have to be afraid of, uh, you don't have to be do it out of, out of a sense of fear, you know, um, because when you think about what you're actually doing and the change in your attitude, your attitude is changing more towards, like we've just discussed, a community, community relationships. Like Pierce mentioned at the beginning that people today don't know how to look after themselves anymore. They live in their little isolated communities, mainly in cities. And they don't really know how to provide for themselves. Uh, so, using the idea of 
a kind of semi-doomsday or whatever, uh, some kind of future, uh, not too distant future situation where the grid goes down or you have to you have to provide for yourself. Using that as a reason to simply establish or re-establish community relations wherever you can find them with like-minded people and learning about canning, for example, and learning how to, you know, grow your own food or whatever, or, you know, those things that you're doing on a practical level and the change in mentality is simply going back to the way people used to live, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago. People, 100 years ago, people were, there was much more community life and community spirit. People did can their own foods to put them away for winter and stuff, and they helped each other out. They built so their own clothes. They own made their houses. own clothes. Built their own clothes. They made their own house. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the point is that this is a good thing because people always say that the old times were best, and people even 50 years ago who grew up 50 years ago say that life then was compared to today was far better. So even if nothing happens, another kind of situation where you where you, where you have nothing to lose and everything to gain, you're actually rebuilding a kind of life or starting to build a life based on an older way of life. That was much, much better than today. You're reclaiming you know, two important you're things. Rec- you're reclaiming individual freedom in the sense of autonomy. It's self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. You can do things by yourself. You're not dependent anymore. And you're reclaiming another very important thing is a true social life. You have friends. You interact. You're not into this materialistic, individualistic life anymore. So these are two very important progresses even if no crisis, and we hope so, if no crisis happens. And why do we focus, why do we insist so much on skills? Because let's just take a hyperinflation scenario, like in uh, Germany, end of the 20s, where basically everybody is, is broken, is poor, everything is super expensive. You cannot buy goods anymore, you cannot buy services anymore. Imagine all the services you depend on, all the skills you depend on, the plumbing, the electricity, the masonry, the gardening, uh, the butchering, the auto repairs, all that is not uh, affordable anymore during hyperinflation times. So there are two solutions. Either you're able to do it, or your network is able to do it, or it's not done. No more car, no more electricity, no more plumbing, no more masonry, no more gardening. Uh, it becomes bare survival like animals, if you can survive. Let's look at something happening now in microcosm. In Greece, the economy tanked well, the plug was pulled from it a few years ago, 50% unemployment, um, basically there is no money going around. People are coping with it. At least there are some examples of people coping locally. Networks have sprung up where they're a center where people go to and they have um, they contribute their skills. Just, just, just uh, on paper initially, they say I'm X and this is what I can do and what I can do. And there are they are put in contact with someone else who needs that and vice versa. And there's a whole little market of things. Essentially bartering. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. And it's not just in Greece where it's markedly worse, at least within Europe. I mean, I've, I've encountered this in Ireland where people were uh, relatively better off. I mean, Ireland has still been hit bad in recent years, but um, people are already responding to a worsened economic condition as it is. Mm-hmm. So... Um, these hypotheticals, I think, will uh, we'll see as they play out. But that's kind of interesting that the people who have been hit worst 
are, the, are most that, prepared for at it. the beginning are the poorest people uh, and that seems unfair but they may have the last laugh in a certain sense and that they have they will have mm-hmm. a longer time to to engage in this kind of community spirit and community sharing and helping each other out uh, than the people who suddenly it just all collapses all at once on their heads maybe uh, you know the middle class the upper middle class whatever who have been spared the worst of the of the bankers transgressions well yeah the elite are screwed well they've got they've got their, <laughs> they've got their bunkers you know. yeah but who's gonna who's gonna who's gonna clean them for who's they're gonna slaves. who's gonna run them for them they've got slaves they've got slaves right well we'll see about that yeah they're they're gonna find that they're uh alone like they've always been and if there's one thing that gets well they're gonna people through these kinds of crises it'll be banding together and hating the elite and blaming the elite for their troubles. Uh, well, no, that's what I mean. I mean, not only are they screwed in the sense that no one will, no one will care about them, but if things happen that no, that, no, they, that that on a wide scale that no, the I, people then blame. I mean, the I mean simply elite. that for people to survive, if any one person has X number of skills and X number of resources, that's not going to do much for him. The value of it is in his contributing that to the whole, because he. he no one person is going to be able to have enough of everything and know enough how to do everything. So the very nature of it is that you you need yeah. to work together with yeah. other people. Yeah. And the elite are constitutionally incapable of doing yeah. that. Uh, but the elite, there might be two kinds. There are the initiates who are prepared, who are preps, rich preps, but preps nonetheless. Preppers. Preppers. And there are the elites who are not really and uh, I would not like to be the owner of one of those fancy villas in Beverly Hills when things get bad, because uh, cities will be, can be place of high criminality, and those places yeah, are absolutely. full of resources, raw material, equipment, and uh, so it might turn bad, and things might get reversed. To help us along with with practicals a bit more, let's go back to you suggest, Joe, that we talk about what scenario we most likely that would give rise to a need for a particular practical exactly so i think i mean we're fairly banking on i mean it has gotten colder mm-hmm. winters are longer mm-hmm. and they're colder so you want to respond to that mm-hmm. warmer clothes of course um people who live in certain areas do they want to get further south I mean, a, a, an ice age, which we've been told can form within six months. Mm-hmm. We're talking like a mile of ice. Yeah. There's no such, well, I, will I adapt to the new environment? Mm-hmm. You need to get beyond a certain... Do people need to move first before they start thinking of... I don't think people should... Again, come back to the premise at the beginning of the show is that people need to be aware and watching what's going on. If you are aware and you know, get past your reluctance to think that anything bad could ever happen and just assume for a minute that it might with the idea of, uh, you know, allowing that awareness and, you know, even given a 50% chance, that's enough to make you think, okay, well, I should think about it as an eventuality. And that will then lead you to maybe have more interest in, in watching the weather, watching the way things are going, watching, you know, news reports, etc. And just being aware and watching those kind of things will give everybody who does that a head start. You know, it's not about right now, you know, even the recent cold winters weren't bad enough to 
make anybody up sta- up stakes and and flee south type of thing, you know. So, but it's unlikely that something like that will happen. All of a sudden, there won't be a you know a mile of ice covering no. Holland, for example, all at once. It'll it'll be progressive. But if you see the signs of this worst case scenario happening, it's up to you when you decide that it's going to go, or it's very likely to go to the worst case scenario. But decide before it arrives. And also have in the back of your mind an idea or a plan or something maybe about somewhere to go that's further south. How you would do it. Even I mean, I'm not even talking about having a... I'm not talking about going and buying a house in South Spain or North Africa or somewhere like that, you know? I'm talking about just thinking about it is enough. You know, it's the people who have not thought about it whatsoever have blotted out any idea, any any conception of the possibility of anything bad happening who will write it up until the last moment will deny it and deny it and deny it, you know? You don't want to be one of those. You want to watch what's going on and if you start to watch what's going on, at some point you're going to say, okay, maybe I need to get a more concrete plan in place here. Maybe I need to think a bit more seriously about where I could go. But you, you also know? can't do it based on fear. You know, the other no. extreme of those would be people who just run away or, you know, they're just acting on fear on wanting to save their own little life, you know, and when you when you're talking about developing a skill, learning something, you know, you're also thinking in terms of what you can do, even if you're not able to move one day, for example. Yeah. You know, what would you do? What would you give your children? What would you want to, I mean, would, do you want to know things? Do you want to teach your children something that they can use in the future? I mean, do you even know how a light bulb works? And and it should not be on the theoretical exercise. Because uh, to acquire properly a skill, you have to to train, you have to to apply it. So I think it's a good idea, in addition to developing your own awareness of what is going on, to start developing concretely some skills. Some I don't know, uh, not only reading on the internet about soap making, but trying to make some soap, getting some light, getting some fat, getting some essential oils, and doing it. And uh, first time it would fail, and second time maybe, and it would improve and acquiring tangible yeah. skills that you can apply, that yeah. you can use even during time of non-crisis. And the point is, when you take a step in that direction, you know, you, again, you have nothing to lose and you are setting your intent. You know, you, you, you're doing something real uh, about it based on this idea. You know in the back of your mind that the reason you're going to learn this new skill or the reason you're exploring possibilities in this area or putting feelers, uh, feelers out in a certain direction or because you are taking the possibility of a bad future scenario uh, seriously, mm. you know, and, and by we, simply doing that and making it real for yourself, yeah. things can change. It'll, it's the first step in the right direction, you know, and yeah, you, you have you nothing do, to lose. You're you learning new skills and you're... If yeah. nothing else, it's just a fun hobby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, Even also, if it turns out that the X thing you did or X thing you made... You didn't need well somebody else might have mm-hmm. and better still you in the process of learning enjoyed it yeah and you made opened new horizons to other things. you met new people etc that skill actually was required in order for you to get to the next yeah. thing so it's step by step and you need to make an effort to do it this is you know you can't hang about waiting on a free lunch type of thing that you're not going to sacrifice anything until you have 
you know, 100% proof that you really need to do this, and then you're only going to do it begrudgingly. That's not the approach to take, you know? I mean, it's about making an effort, and so there's a certain amount of faith involved here. But it's objective faith, or it's faith based on an objective observation of the environment around you, you know? So it's like the environment is giving you signs. It's not 100% proof. It's giving you signs and hints that something might be happening, and there's where the faith comes in, faith that... Um, if these things are happening, it's possible that it could get worse, you know, rather than the opposite, which is totally dismissing it and saying, well, you know, based on a subjective need not to want to be put out of your comfort zone. One of the first steps to develop this awareness beyond the theoretical level is to test your level of dependency. Try for several hours to switch off and see how life is without electricity. Try to uh, switch off the heater during winter and see how life is without heater. And uh, when realizing our level of dependency, um, it might be one of the strongest motivators to learn those skills. And you don't even need to be politically oriented or anything. I mean, I think most people have it in the back of their minds that their leaders are not to be trusted in some way or another, you know, that they won't be there to protect them all the time. So just from that base, you know, why you know, why not learn to be independent, autonomous, you know? Just that, without yeah. being without going into conspiracies, without without yeah. going into end of the world scenarios, why wouldn't you want, want to be independent? Yeah. A big thing, of course, will be the stress this gives people. Because at the best of times, people worry. People, when they get hungry, they're already worried. <laughs> Am I going to starve? Mm-hmm. Even when they know for well they're secure, there's, fridge, there's food in the fridge and so on. So you can imagine that stress building when it becomes more apparent that the regular needs are less available. I think, Joe, Joe your point that people just get into the mindset yeah. is a great a way step. to deal with the stress. Yeah, but it's also, it. it's also a step in the right direction. It's a, it's a first step in the right direction to get over your psychological or emotional block. By empowering yourself, by learning. To, to by believe, to believe to, to, yeah, to, to your psychological block or your emotional block, your emotional need not to, not to think about being put out of your comfort zone in a serious way, you know? And I don't know, it's, it's almost like an esoteric or kind of spiritual thing in a way because by... Taking action and making efforts and making a little, maybe even a little sacrifice. It's going to take effort. It might take a bit of sacrifice in some area or other, but it's nothing too serious. By engaging in this kind of thinking and in this kind of practice and taking up a new skill or you know, networking with a new community or putting you know feelers out in that direction, you are responding with your own energy and your own awareness to signs that are all around us. I mean, if there's any kind of a conscious awareness in the universe or whatever that directs these kind of climate or planetary changes on a on a cyclical basis, well then, you know, you're interacting with that. You know, you're responding favorably. You're responding, uh, you know, to the signs that are out there around you that are objective, that are true, that are based in truth in a sea of lies, in a sea of global warming lies that is forcing people to you know, buy a buy a, a an electric car, or you know, uh, stop eating so much meat. 
because you know cows contribute to emissions and go vegetarian or you know do all these ridiculous things that have nothing to do with what's actually happening you know you're if you if you respond to the global warming thing and try to be green then you're responding to a lie propagated by psychopaths in power if you do what we're suggesting you're doing you're responding to an objective truth that is being offered to you by the universe yeah seeing the world as it is is a key point as far as the human cosmic connection is concerned if it exists but also on a more practical level seeing things as it is and being prepared can be a lifesaver in accidentologies um a lot of of sailing cases are being um, studied. Accidentology study accidents. And, uh, sailing is an interesting topic because it's very close to uh, the crisis that we might expect. Basic sailing. Sailing, yeah, because you're in a environment. There's no grid. There's no resources. No fresh water, and uh, you're cut away from society. You're alone or alone with your crew. And when accidentology studies sailing accidents, they say that actually usually there's one small problem occurring, technical problem, maybe because big wave brings the mast down, breaks the mast, okay? That's not a big deal, objectively. But actually what really matters and what we define the outcome, death of crew members versus uh, fixing quickly and efficiently the problem, is the psychological state of the crew and the way they will react. And often, Dramatic accidents occur when the stress, the fear, overcome the thinking of the crew and they start to make the wrong decisions that lead to a bigger accident, even more stress, an even bigger accident. And sometimes you have disasters. It's crazy, actually. It's, it's self-made accident. It's a negative feedback loop that spirals downward exactly. and can spiral downward to destruction. Exactly. And it's based... But for uh, the crew of a sailing, a sailing boat to respond in that way, they would have to have been prepared or trained themselves yeah. in some way to expect that yeah. and to be able to remain calm and have some contingencies in place and know how to act for that in response yeah. to that eventuality. And that's exactly. kind of what we're talking about here, about here as a first step. Because so many people don't do that. So the real problem here is that so many people haven't even got to the point of allowing into their awareness the possibility of something bad happening in the very near future. They are in la-la land. You know, they've got the rose-colored glasses on and they're not seeing anything. They're ignoring it all. Stuff that's actually filtering in, they're rejecting it. They're dismissing it. They're explaining it away. And those people, if something bad happens, those people are going to be caught completely unawares and not know, and they're going to probably end up in the situation that Pierre was describing, which is they will panic, not be prepared to panic, It'll be a traumatic situation, and they will probably make a worse mistake that compounds the problem, and that's it. Now, if you want to be in that position, go ahead. Continue to believe the lies and keep the glasses on, but you know, it's not like there aren't signs pointing to something very different happening. And it's not like there's not any price to pay by doing that, because even nowadays, people are getting sick. People are more and more stressed. I mean, you can keep a facade and claim that everything's all right and that if you have positive thoughts, then nothing bad would ha will happen. But in reality, people's bodies even are, are reacting. Mm -hmm. You know, people are going crazy. Mm -hmm. More and more people need antidepressants. Is that a way of coping? Mm -hmm. well, yeah, and uh, um, about this uh, 
possible problems looming in the future. I said, Jesus, Eskimos have been coping with a very cold temperature for decades, for centuries. In Russia in the 90s, people have been coping with a terrible economic crisis, some with success, some even become richer, if not materially, spiritually. So for most of the possible coming situations, there's nothing insurmountable. There's no unsolvable problems. I think I think you also, just have to be <clears throat> ready to have the yeah. appropriate knowledge and network and I think all of the posture. all of the scenarios that we could posit, uh for example this winter. You know This winter not ending. Yeah. First of all, many feet of snow in unusual places in the northern hemisphere and even then next year maybe in the southern hemisphere. Um uh, you know, solar flare or an EMP or whatever you want to call it, but the grid going down. Um, all of those scenarios, even a volcano erupting and blotting out sun, all of those scenarios involve really one of one or both of two things, one or other or both of two things: uh, no electricity and no food. That's kind of what it comes down to, right? No act or no electricity, no food. I or no electricity and no water. And no and no water. No electricity, no food, no water. Uh, no access to the stores. No access to any products. So just imagine, sit down for a while and imagine yourself in that situation, and think now, what would you need? What do you use on a daily basis that are the essentials that you might think about stocking up on, having a small extra or whatever size extra supply? Off to see you through. So in the immediate, in the immediate uh, aftermath of one of those situations happening, you're not one of the people getting trampled at the department store trying to get the supplies. Then that you already have them. There's the first step, the first avoidance of the first outcome of one of those situations is being part of a mad, violent throng running around the streets into every store trying to grab as much of whatever is available as possible. Do you want to be one of those people? That's a I good mean, example. It's, it's happened even in the absence of any kind of crisis at Walmart stores when they've had, uh, on Black Friday, you know, people have been trampled to death when people are rushing to get stuff that they don't even need because there is no crisis. You know, it's just stuff on sale. Yeah. Imagine what it's like when it comes down to basic yeah. necessities for survival. That's a good example where your psychological state the stress, the fear, leads you to wrong decisions that are more harmful than they are beneficial because for a few bottles of water, you might end up injured. Or in jail. Or in jail. And being injured in normal time is okay, but being injured in crisis time is much more difficult. Access to hospitals, MDs, is not the same anymore. And that, those are the things to think about, and that's really a really practical way. I mean, nobody can say that they would want to be in that situation. So take steps. It's very easy to take steps to, to avoid at least that situation. And once you've done that, it makes it real for you. You've gone out and you've bought a few extra supplies of the bare essentials, and it's made it real for you. You've responded and put your energy into it in a real way, and you've kind of opened the door, you know? And so Michael, take that first step. We're not talking about, you know, having a new house in the country or having a whole herd of cattle yeah. Or, you know, a stockpiling in some warehouse somewhere or having, you know, an armory of guns and having a network of preppers behind you to go, you know, raiding and stuff. That's all, you know, it's well, just the first step. Yeah. 
psychologically is very important, I think, because one of the problems is that during a crisis, people will freeze from fear. They won't feel, they, they won't know what to do. Well, if you already take the steps like that uh, Joe is describing, then you have removed a big part of the fear. You can, you have a little, you have given you yourself a little bit of time to figure out what to do next. And that's yeah. a huge burden. It's crucial. Vigilance is crucial. And your vigilance is eaten by stress. So being as in a good mindset as you can be yeah. will, will enable you physically to respond better. On a material level, uh, this awareness should lead, I think, to a capacity to react faster than others. Mm-hmm. Especially if you live in an urban area, you don't want to react at the same speed as others because uh, you, if the magnitude of the events is high enough, you will have shortage of food, shortage of water, and you will, and you will have the roads that might be blocked. You might have a refugee drift. You might have people leaving urban areas because there's no more resources. I don't know. That's a possibility. Uh, in this case, in this particular case, you want to be ready and able to leave before the communication axes are blocked. Yeah. Anyway, food. Think about what medical supplies you need as it is, and then what other things you might need. Um, yeah, about this point, quickly, not exactly medical supplies, but prevention. Prevention is probably the most important thing because you don't really want to go through major surgery during a uh, serious crisis time. So I think it's important right now to uh, get as healthy as possible, as fit as possible to all the preparatory, all the dental work that you have to do if you can afford it or at least do it incrementally. Solve all the health issues you might have or try to solve them because right now it's much easier than when resources are Absolutely. limited. That brings us to the worst case scenario, but unfortunately it's very present. That's in our skies, as we've mentioned already, the ridiculous increase in fireball sightings, uh, like we said, 13,000 or some this year. Uh, and that's just in the US, so let's multiply that by three, maybe three, four times, maybe for the rest of the world. You want to talk about 50,000 fireballs, divide that by 365. I don't know what that, quite a few per day flying across yeah. the, the skies of the planet. And evidence, there is scientific, pretty hard scientific evidence for at least life having partly been produced on this planet by comets. Uh, the idea of panspermia, bringing mm-hmm. organisms um, to the Earth that seeded life. I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly um, there is evidence that very recently they found uh, evidence of microbes, microorganisms in the upper atmosphere that were not from the planet. And back in, actually, this was quite covered up, but back in 2002, there was, a, for a month or two, there was this red rain falling in Kerala in India. And um, initially they thought it was comet, uh, not comet dust, they thought it was dust from from a desert, from an African desert. Yeah, or that was from, picked from up a, and then deposited. with red rain. But then there was a scientist, and there's, you can check this out on, uh, there was a report done on it. Uh, I think there's a video on YouTube 
about a scientist who studied this and said that, it, that the organisms, he put them under a microscope, or not the organisms, but this red rain, he put a couple of drops of it under a microscope, microscope and he stated pretty clearly that um, this was not dust, uh, bore no resemblance to dust particles or sand particles, and that, in fact, it seemed to have a, it bore a, a pretty striking resemblance to a, some kind of a microbe or some kind of a you know living organism. Uh, so the point here is that not only do comets see life on Earth, they also can destroy it by um, by bringing viruses, or, viruses bacteria. or bacteria in. And this was this was uh, this is a theory that's um, proposed for things like the Black Death. Uh, that in fact well, it was caused by not by rats carrying yeah. a virus, but by I, I, if people really sat and thought about this is this is relatively recent history. Six hundred years ago, six hundred and sixty-six to be precise, uh, years ago, the Black Death struck. It, at the very least, it wiped out half of your population. That's the lower end of the estimation. Up to 80% of the population of Europe, which was 400, no, it wasn't 400 million. It was about 200 million people at the time. That is a civilization-ending event. Mm-hmm. It was spread out over a few years, and it did return in ways. I, I'm thinking in particular of the so-called Great Plague that hit London in 1666. That number again. Um, it lasted, actually, the Black Death started in 1240. Mm-hmm. It lasted the last uh, waves until uh, 1720. Yeah, it was about 500 years. But, <coughs> and the, 500 great, the Great Plague of London that you're talking about uh, was in about in 1666, right? Yes. And um, In 1665, an fireball was observed. Exactly. And uh, but not only that, actually, 1240 was preceded by uh, several years of intense cometary activity, and uh, 540 AD, uh, the beginning of the Justinian plague, was preceded by uh, intense cometary activity as well. So it's not a smoking gun, mm-hmm. but a strong correlation between cometary activity and the start of of plagues. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a smoking gun actually was published in 2012 by Ravi Chanda, an Indian scientist who found uh, in meteoric material fused fossilized microorganism in a recently fallen meteorite, mm-hmm. proving that meteorites mm-hmm. can carry microorganisms from outer space. So there have been quite a few that, uh, meteorites yeah. flying through our atmosphere and also some comets uh, that that have passed by uh, of late, so that's another possibility, another, another scenario of some kind of a viral epidemic. Uh, yeah, pandemic. And part of the reason it's so devastating is because it brings in a whole new strain of virus. Absolutely. For which we have no, no uh, defense. No defense against. Except, and this is what this is why I brought this up was uh, Pierre mentioned uh, staying as healthy as possible, and one way to stay as healthy as possible is to eat more animal fat and reduce your sugars and carbs to as low as possible because. Animal fat um, is a very good way. Ingesting animal fat and having it in your system is a very good way of protecting your cells, increasing the fat um, myelin myelin uh, sheath around your cells. 
which is essentially a protective coating of fat to protect against the intrusion of viruses. And also, a lot of viruses feed on sugars, i.e. any type of carb that's broken down into sugar or sugar itself. So by reducing your sugars and increasing your fat, you are providing a, essentially a, a double uh, defense against mm-hmm. viruses. And we're not talking just here about no, uh, any possible cometary, cometary viruses. We're talking about uh, any other viruses, bird flu, swine flu, you know, horse flu, uh, donkey flu, cat flu. Yeah. And it's been shown, flu. actually, that viri look like DNA or very similar and can alter your DNA. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, junk today or GMOs or whatever, they, they've been shown to actually destroy your DNA, create mm-hmm. mutations that you've never imagined possible. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have healthy DNA plus a good fatty coat on your cells, then you're much more prone to catching yeah. anything, whether yeah. it's human-born or airborne mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, whatever. And fireball through electrophonics can modify DNA as well, they're mutagenic. Mm-hmm. Uh, just there is one secondary evidence, historical evidence, showing a correlation between high-fat diet and plague resistance. After the Justinian plague, most of the Western Europe was wiped out, and uh, a few centuries later, the tribe that emerged was the Franks, a Germanic tribe, and in his uh, War of Gauls, Caesar describes the diet of the Germanic tribes. He says that unlike us Romans with a lot of weed, Germanic tribes mostly eat meat, and meat all the time, i.e. not lean meat, fat meat. And the other point he emphasized about Germanic tribes is he said that since childhood, they bath in ice cold water. Mm. So um, this might be two yeah. factors that increase plague resistance. Immunity, yeah. There is a third one. This is just anecdotal, but I found it fascinating. In the during the Great Plague, 1666, in London, school children were forced. Apparently, they had no choice in the matter to smoke. Tobacco. That's no anecdote. No, that's is that what? Well, it's it's fairly well documented, documented. that uh, during the, the the Great Plague of London, um, they didn't kind of realize. I mean, it's well known that authorities at the time kept fires burning night and day, in the hopes that the air would be cleansed of whatever was causing the, the this this plague. Uh, suggest that they had an understanding that it was some kind of viral infection that was carried in the air or was transmitted through the air rather than by rats. Um, and then this may have been linked, this attempt to uh, forestall the infection may have been linked to a very common belief among ordinary people at the time as well um, about smoking tobacco. Uh, according to uh Amateur historian, uh, some some years later, his name was A.J. Bell, who was writing in 1700. <clears throat> he said, for personal for personal disinfections, this is about during the plague. For personal disinfections, nothing enjoyed such favor as tobacco. The belief in it was widespread, and even children were made to light up a reef in pipes. Thomas Hearns remembers one Tom Rogers telling him that when he was a scholar at Eton, in the year that the Great Plague raged. All the boys smoked in school by order, and that he was never whipped so much in his life 
as he was one morning for not smoking. It was long afterwards a tradition that none who kept the tobacconist shop in London had the plague. I mean, there's other evidence that tobacco leaves, tobacco leaves have a, um, a an antiviral effect. Um, I think in the year eight, in the year 1500, uh, there was a Portuguese explorer in Brazil, uh, Cabral, who reported that the use of the herb betum, as it was called, tobacco, for, uh, for treating ulcerated abscesses, fistulas, sores invertebrate polyps and many other ailments. And in 1529, a Spanish missionary priest collected information from four Mexican physicians about the use of tobacco for medicinal purposes. He recorded that breathing the odor of fresh green leaves of the plant relieved persistent headaches. For colds and catarrh, green or powdered leaves should be rubbed around inside the mouth. Diseases of the glands and the neck could be cured by cutting out the root of the lesion and placing on it a crushed tobacco plant hot and mixed with salt. So there's plenty of other historical references mm-hmm. to tobacco being used for various ailments, include, and of course many indigenous uh, tribes and communities throughout history have have smoked tobacco leaves and uh, yeah. none of them had lung so cancer. So basically to survive, you're, you're telling us that we have to do exactly what the mainstream it's, doctors isn't tell us will kill it. strange? Isn't that just, it's just a coincidence, I suppose, but it's amazing to me that almost everything that is officially propagated as the thing to do for health, well-being, etc., mm-hmm. prosperity, it's pretty much exactly the opposite of what really should be done. Yeah. Amazing. And I don't know if that, that, that's the only thing that makes me think it's by design, because I don't believe that they could have got it so completely inverted uh, by coincidence. You know, I think they may have, you know, there may be some distortion in the truth to a certain extent, but when it's exactly the opposite, I'm like, somebody had to plan this. But then I'm just like a conspiracy oh, theorist. Anyway. Well, uh, just one point about the uh, airborne plague versus rat-borne plague. Um, two pieces of evidence tends to confirm that it was an airborne virus. A, the speed of propagation. It propagated so f- so fast that rat migration couldn't explain this speed of propagation. And B, plague has been uh, witnessed in Iceland where there's no rats. Um, so it's probably an airborne virus. And smoking would be interesting to prevent airborne virus including plague, because one of the effects of smoking is that it stimulates the secretion of mucus in the lungs that acts as a protective barrier and prevents virus to enter the body, the organism, through the lungs. Mm-hmm. And here we're talking about as natural tobacco as you can get, uh, rather than pre-rolled uh, cigarettes that contain all sorts of uh, additives and toxic chemicals. Smoking a pipe, for example, or rolling your own. Of course, independent from this more anecdotal references to tobacco from history, the research done today, um, research that's funded to, of course, cast tobacco as as the evil that we're told it is, time and time again, it, it accidentally discovers properties that are beneficial. The same happens with pet. Indeed. Animal pet. Indeed. And... In particular, they seem to center around the um, 
uh, the benefits tobacco smoking brings to your to your psychological health. Um, the, you know, lowering stress, or at least being able to deal with stress. Again, this comes back to the core of being in good shape for whatever kind of crisis is in front of you. You cannot be vigilant and reading your environment and being responsible enough to act on what is telling you if you're not How psychologically you? with it. Or, or physically. Or physically. If it's physically. interconnected. Yeah, we didn't address the the point concerning water, so maybe we can say a few words about it. Um, water is one of the resources that can become scarce during the time of crisis. And uh, when there are several sources of water, if the water pumps are down, there is underground water. So sure, if you have some land and, and a well or stream, that's ideal. If you are aware, think about a manual pump. If you don't have a generator to operate an electric pump, um, stream can be uh, <coughs> used directly. Um, don't forget to treat the water if you live in the city and here. analyze it. If you live in the city, uh, there's rainwater. If you can collect it, uh, dance sprouts. If you have a house, it's easier. Dance sprouts can generate a, a lot of water, but it has to be treated. You mean, as well. you mean drain? The pipes, vertical yeah. pipes connected to the gutters, mm-hmm. dance sprouts. Just drains or um, gutter, gutters. Okay. Gutter pipes. Or, <laughs> I, don't know. I hope the listeners understood. <laughs> the auditors <laughs> understood. Drains. And uh, treatment can be made uh, with chlorine, but chlorine is a powerful oxidant, so health-wise it's not the best solution. Uh, UV treatment is a good treatment. There are some cheap UV lights to uh, to destroy bacteria and viri. Or, and or colloidal silver is also an efficient, a potent antiseptic uh, agent. All right, now for the big one. You mean plague wipe, wiping out most of the world in the big one? No. Oh. The hot potato, and I'm going to throw it in your direction. Security? Where's my gun? (laughs) (laughs) Guns. Well, it's interesting. I mean, in the U.S., it's fairly openly discussed, tongue-in-cheek most of the time. But there it is. It's in the cultural. People are talking about it, about the zombie apocalypse. And the gun culture is being remarketed in a way. What do you mean people are talking about the zombie apocalypse? People are actually taking well, seriously the t- People are taking seriously the scenario, which we didn't list as one of ours, that there will be zombies roaming the street. Now, yeah, but do you know what mean, that's going to translate to for people? That's going to translate to what we already discussed. The idea of a zombie apocalypse is very, very similar to hordes of people running through the street trying to get to any store or any department store they can and beating everybody in their way and yeah. acting crazy. That's pretty close to a zombie kind of scenario, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but that's what those people, they, the people who are preparing for the zombie apocalypse will respond to that mm-hmm. if they are planning to respond with weapons. And a, yes, and a core, um, a core plank in the way preppers are being prepped for any eventuality is... Okay, water, food, and guns. So in, if things were in that kind of scenario, in that kind of state, where without a weapon you would not survive, nobody would survive long enough. You know what I mean? Think, if things are so bad that you're relying on the weapon to to survive. Mm. 
So is there any reason to have a weapon? Well, a reason might be uh, getting fresh food, <clears throat> hunting, and fishing, and also having a greenhouse is a good way to insulate hunting your... Hunting fish with a gun? Uh, no, hunting a gun, but more globally oh. to get uh, fresh food in order to bring some variety uh, and change from canned food is uh, yeah, is fishing, hunting, and uh, growing some plants as well. And a greenhouse is a way to grow plants even in Ice Age and to insulate in, in the, at the same time you're building. Um, but again, getting a gun for hunting is useless if you don't acquire the skill for hunting, if you don't know the territory, the animals, how the gun operates, it's even dangerous to operate a gun without proper knowledge. So again, we go back to the preponderance of skills over material possessions. Yeah, so here we're talking about people who don't have a gun and whether or not they should have a gun, because a lot of people in the U.S., if they're listening from the U.S., uh, will be aware that a lot of people, if they themselves don't have a gun, a lot of people around them, depending on where you live, but a lot of people, there's a good chance that someone around you in your community has a gun, or many people have guns. So in that sense, it's a kind of a moot point, because those people have guns already for different reasons, but they will obviously turn uh, and use them as they see fit. Obviously, these people aren't going to go animal hunting in an urban area with you know 10 million other people around. Depend. Well, uh, the, the big reason that um, a lot of militia or just regular survivalists, people who are doing this solo, the big reason they give for stocking up on ammo is for the showdown. But this other scenario, we haven't brought it in yet, the showdown with the feds when the government clamps down and comes to take stuff from you that you can defend your family, your resources. Hmm. Now, I mean, again, in a scenario here where it's you against an army. You don't want to be in that scenario. So again, no. that comes to watching the environment, watching what's happen, happening around you. And when you see it getting past a kind of a point of no return or certainly a point where you there's a greater than 50% chance that it will go to a, a situation that you don't want to be in, well, then that's when you have your your backup plan of going somewhere else or having somewhere else to go, having someone else to go to in a different setting. Um, and uh, here it shows that what is proposed by most preppers, i.e. going solo in the forest with tons of guns and ammunition is not a good idea because you will have dozens of people following this strategy. So we'll have forest full of widows, uh, equipped oh, with uh, machine guns <laughs> and ammunition. So you don't want to be solo in the forest uh, with guns. Um, in the book, How to Survive the End of the World, as we know it, by uh, James Wesley Rawls, I recommend this book because uh, this guy has been uh, studying this topic and applying it give, for, for a few decades, actually. Give, give the name again there slowly. How to Survive the End of the World as We Know It. It's written by James Wesley Rawls. And you spell his family name R A W L E S Rollis. So I don't know how you spell, how you pronounce this word. Um, anyway, in this, uh, he has well, he's an ex uh, intelligence agent. Nobody's perfect, so mm -hmm. he's kind of overemphasized the security uh, topic. He has a lot of chapters dedicated to that. However, he has some interesting points. One of the interesting points is that uh, he said that two basics defense strategies, um, castle, 
versus concealment. Defensi defensibility versus concealment. Defensibility, typically, it's a middle-aged castle on top of a mountain. Everybody sees it. There's a lot of resources. Everybody knows it, but there's so many weapons and so much defense that nobody can get it, theoretically. The opposite strategy is concealment. Concealment is being discreet. Uh, do not attract looters. And there are a few tips he gives that are interesting. If you have a generator, if you produce light, you need some uh, black tape, black plastic on your windows. You don't want people to see the light through your windows. Otherwise, they will deduce that you have energy where they have not. You have a resource that is precious. If you have generators, your generator, he says, conceal the sounds. Put it in a soundproof room. A lot of uh, little advices like that yeah. about being discreet, not advertising the fact that you have resources, that you can be a prey to looters. Mm. Just on that scenario where there might be looters, say, and you and you have some level of independent electric, electricity generation, um, you know, that scenario of the power grid going down is interesting because while it seems very unlikely and we've all come to depend so much on electricity always being there and there's no sign that that could happen on such a wide scale, the thing is that if it did happen, for any of the various reasons that could cause it to happen, it would happen immediately. For example, it could happen tomorrow. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily get much warning about. Except no, it could happen early on in the crisis. Uh, yeah, except, except in the sense that it's one of the possible results of, of the stuff that's been going on <clears throat> for several years. So, um, But I think in that scenario, if a lot of people in a, in a major city or in a major part of the world, uh, a major populated, uh, a, a highly populated part of the world, find themselves in that situation, um, the immediate reaction would be to, would be kind of, you know, what's going on and when's it going to come back on? And then people would use up their stocks. They would maybe go to the supermarkets, get as much as they can. That would last a few days. If it went on for a week, you'd have a process of people complaining, you know, the government agencies trying to placate the people or trying to do something about it. But if it wasn't going to come back on in the foreseeable future, it, I think it would progress to the point where people would quite quickly, if there was no food being delivered to the stores and there was only meager supplies, being delivered by some relief agency, uh, people would relatively quickly, within let's say a month, start getting a bit antsy. And you may find yourself in a position where there are people going around with guns, um, you know, looking for you know supplies from other people. <clears throat> what about zombies with guns? Zombies with guns? No, zombies don't need guns. They just they just want, eat they want brains, but you know. So it's it's um, it, well, in that situation where you have some electricity, that's a good good point. If you find yourself after that period of a month or whatever, however long it takes uh, for it to be a dangerous situation, and you want to hide the fact that you have electricity, you know, don't use your electricity at night. Use candles like everybody else is using. Um, and if you use candles, have fire detectors because one of the big problems before electricity was the fires because of lanterns and uh, and candles. So battery-powered uh, smoke detectors and fire detectors are cheap, easy to install. So it's a good investment if you want to be prepared for this 
kind of eventuality. And now it, it's a crucial point, this, uh, this gun topic. Uh, I've been thinking about it for a while, and it sounds really like a <coughs> social regression, you know, thinking about having guns to defend yourself, shooting on someone to defend yourself nonetheless, but it's the possibility of shooting someone. But at the same time, when you think about it, before the emergence of states that are supposed to give security to citizens and to prevent violence between citizens, for centuries, if not millennia, in societies, the use of weapons was widespread and people were walking around with their swords or their guns, the pistols, depending on the period of history. So <clears throat> is it a possibility to acquire a gun and to learn how to use it, at least for self-defense, and uh, to encourage looters to loot the neighbor's side of your house? Is oh. it a promoting an escalation of violence? Is it uh, useless because there will be always more looters coming? I think in the U.S., um, having a gun in the home has been has been a feature. It's been a fixture for for generations. You know, I think the the nightmare scenario where you've got crazy people, so to speak, loaded loaded with guns, going around and taking other stuff from people, is is the kind of thing we're, we're thinking about here, but it's 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 still far off. I think it's not something that I think for most people they they are in touch with their own recent history. At least people in rural areas, um, they're aware of why they had a gun in the home. It was there as a deterrent. They didn't necessarily shoot every intruder or anything. Of course not, and. I think as part of getting back in touch with mm. a relatively independent lifestyle that people knew just two two generations ago, canning your own food, saving for a rainy day, mm. that is not a bad idea. Yeah. If we, speaking of canning your own food, I know, Juliana, you have uh, in a previous incarnation, uh, yeah. or rather in a previous life, uh, you, um, <clears throat> you canned some food. I've never done it myself, but... Um, is it easy to do? Oh, yeah. It's very, very easy. Just walk us through the process there. Well, it depends on what you want to can. If you want to can... Well, let's say small scale for most people who live in a meat, meat you, fat. Yeah, I'd say the most basic things to keep you alive would be fat and meat. Now, you can get the cheapest cuts of the butcher and uh, chop it up in pieces, can it raw, so you raw pack it. You just put the meat in the jar... Um, put a little bit of salt because that helps it um, preserve as well. And then you buy, depending on the cans you buy, uh, you just seal it. Don't add any water or anything. You seal it. So it's a jar, right? You wanna, a yeah, glass it's jar. a glass jar with a seal and then with a, uh, with a lid. that you can when, Once you open the seal, you can just close, open and close the jar as you want. Um, and then you put it in a, you need a, either a special pressure cooker one of those big big ones, you know. I don't uh-huh. know what you call them in the yeah, the it's a pressure cooker. And it and you usually leave it for sixty to ninety. It's better if you leave it ninety minutes, uh, so that it sterilizes properly. If you don't have one and you have just a little one, a little pressure cooker in your house, then it's better if you leave it for three hours. And that's it. I mean, you after it's done, you wait till the pressure goes down. You remove it. Once it cools down, you um, you make sure the seals are properly sealed, mm-hmm. and there you go. And it, it can you can keep for four or five years, no problem. Yeah, 
Well, there's a question here: which 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 fruit is better to can? Which fruit? Any? Well, I wouldn't can fruit for survival purposes, no, but yeah. if you can, if you're fruit, a vegetarian, <laughs> if you're a vegetarian, not then, perfect, yeah. then you might want to can anything, any fruit. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can can. The only thing with fruit is that you wanna, you don't wanna put it in the pressure cooker. Just make uh, putting it into a boil for mm. 20 minutes is enough. And also, if you have it uh, available, uh, adding sugar or a little bit of ascorbic acid. Vitamin C or or apple pectin that helps it preserve mm. as well. Mm-hmm. But any kind of fruit you like really works. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also just had a message there about uh, food de- dehydrator to make pemmican. Hmm? Uh, yeah, as long as you can preserve it afterwards. I don't know if how long can. it lasts. Yeah. yeah, I mean if you have you a vacuum, have sealer, vacuum sealer, yeah. it's probably better because I don't know with humidity and animals mm-hmm. around and whatever. Or you need a, a dry place, a dry room. Yeah. Otherwise, we get mold developing. You can also store all kind of food without canning, like uh, legumes, for example, and other kind of, of food. In uh, you know those blue barrels with uh, seed leaves. Mm. You put your food in there. Or oh, legumes, you mean like dried uh, <coughs> like beans, Peas dried beans, or dried, dried yeah. pulses. Yeah. Uh, even uh, grains. And we don't say you should buy grains, but. If barter becomes the predominant mode of uh, economic exchange, mm. um, having wheat uh, and other grains is very interesting. And for that, if you want to store those kind of food before putting it in blue barrel, put it in a sheet, plastic sheeting of Mila because it prevents mm. exchange. Those blue barrel, any plastic leave uh, oh. some uh, and one thing exchange and uh, anti-oxygen tablet. Ba- tablet inside the blue barrel and then you seal all that and you try to store it in a room as cold as possible. And earlier on you were talking about the plague. One of the things that is said to have saved people from the plague is bone broth. Now that's super, super cheap. And you just get bones, marrow bones if possible from the butchers. We get it for free. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you can get it for free in most places. And you just um, boil it in a pressure cooker for about a day. And then you can it. You follow the same procedure as if you were canning vegetables. Hmm. And that is said to have saved the lives of people with the plague, you know, and you can feed an entire family with that if you if you add water to it later. So, so those are things that are packed in minerals, vitamins, fat. You make it concentrate because you say you add water later. Yeah, yeah, if you leave it longer, say, for example, for an entire day, then it will be so packed with minerals and everything. It will have extracted everything from the bone so that you can dilute it in with, add more water, add a little bit of meat if that's all you have, or grains or whatever you have, and feed an entire household. Mm. And a great great food to store is salt. Mm-hmm. Salt is very useful. You need it as a taste exhauster. It's a preservative. And uh, for you and for barter, because salt doesn't need special requirements for storage. You can store it for literally for centuries. You can use bad. it to smoke food as well. Exactly. Smoking is a very good skill to acquire. Indeed. Um, I'm not sure about how long it can preserve, because smoking alone won't won't do it, but you can smoke meats to at least keep things temporarily uh, preserved, that, that in, case you, in case you don't have refrigeration. You will smoke, to keep them for a longer time, they need smoking to be and salting. They need to be dried properly. And yeah, you but need the salt for it. Yeah, salting, smoking, and then drying. 
Yeah. But, I mean, people can experiment with that. If, if they want to smoke something and salt it and then hang it up somewhere in a dry area, see if it, see if it keeps, you know, with the salt on it. I mean, you'll end up with some pretty salty meat, but it's better than nothing, you know. But what kind of things would people, <clears throat> would it be good? Imagine a scenario where you'd have to barter things oh. or something that would be valuable to people who aren't thinking about, for example, the ketogenic diet or the paleo diet who are on that. What kind of things would those people be interested if you wanted if they came and said listen i've got some pork i'm a vegetarian and i've got this pig and i just can't stand to look at him <laughs> two things what have you got to exchange for for this pig two things come to mind sugar and milk alcohol 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 we will be back to a little bit toilet and paper <clears throat> toilet paper and uh, feminine hygiene pads yeah okay. um Thank it's you. on the top of the list and actually what list the special list Pier- of uh, the hundred <laughs> things list. that disappear. Now, and where did you get that from? What is uh, an article well, in tell French? Us, tell us what, what it's about. Well, um, what is the title of the article? The hundred first things that disappear during time of uh, crisis. It was written by a survivor of Sarajevo war. And from the survivor testimony and from other testimonies I read, something that is very valuable in this time of crisis are those little items that preserve the what is left of humanity in us. Mm. lipstick for women perfume soap soap yeah all those things like that hygiene um, hygiene products what is very very good for butter as well in this time is batteries batteries to power all those uh, electronic gizmos wood if you have access to wood uh, tools Chenso, chenso is a, is a great thing. Fuel, ammunition, of course. Uh, These are arms. things that were valued as barter items. Oh yeah, number one is a, a I mean, generator. Number two is filters and water purificators. Number three, portable potties. Yeah. Uh, number four, dry wood. Number five, oil for lanterns. Huh. Number six. Coleman fuel. Number seven, weapons and ammunition. Number eight, can opener. Number nine, honey, syrup, sugar. Number ten, rice, beans, and wheat. Hmm. Number eleven, oil, vegetable oil. Number twelve, charcoal and starter liquid. Number thirteen, interestingly, and it's mentioned in this book from this uh, Rollers guy as well, during this time of uh, Crisis, you never have enough containers. All those plastic containers, you know, to store, to tidy things away. Number 14, uh, portable gas heater. Number 5, cereal meal, manual. Yeah, 15. Number 16, propane tank. Number 17, survival manual. And uh, it goes on. There are hundreds, so I won't spare, hmm. I will spare yeah. you, but. Um, that gives you an idea of. Yeah. Um, of what's in demand uh, yeah. in times of crisis. Trash bags, toilet paper, milk, seeds. Yeah, seeds is, a, seeds is great. I mean, we, we're kind of a strong advocate of ketogenic diets, but seeds for buttering, for sprouting, for growing uh, food, uh, uh, it's a great thing. Also, so you're saying that, that iPhones won't be, <laughs> iPhones won't be high on that list? Number 27, iPhone, iPhone 5, oh. S, 
Yeah. Well, you know, I've <laughs> well, read some crazy. I mean, I was starting to get worried there. I've read some crazy stuff today. Looking for information for the show, I was reading about uh, one of these preppers. You know, the the item number one was dental floss, because because you can use it as a fish line or whatever, or to grab food from whatever they were. Number two were condoms because you can store up to a gallon of water in them. Yeah. I mean, why don't they just need containers of things like that? There are interesting ones in this list. Thirty-three. <clears throat> How do you call that? The, when you dry your your clothes on a on a string, there's clothes pegs. Huh? Clothes pegs. Clothes pegs because you don't, the dryer is not working anymore. No, it no. consumes too much electricity. That's, that's, that's for 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 the smell, the for your nose, <laughs> for the smell <laughs> when people are throwing their toilets out the window. Thirty-six fire extinguisher. Yeah. And uh, number forty, big dog. A big dog, yeah. For safety, security. People Number 42, matches. Yeah. Matches, yeah. Number 43, paper and uh, pencil. And where does chocolate come on that list? Um, I'm not sure it's specifically mentioned. Might but you be. can include it in one of the top items with uh, all the sweet stuff. Mm. You can imagine that some, some luxury goods <clears throat> would be very handy. Yeah, I think it's some, there's some kind of consensus about it because people seem to need the... Um, the feeling of that some that life goes on mm. or that something is you know yeah. worth living for or mm -hmm. I don't know what the to keep up appearances essentially yeah so, so perfume and makeup civilized. and things like that or yeah you to, know to maintain some dignity as well yeah during a Second World War a valuable item was a black pencil because woman at the time the stockings had a seam at the back that was showing a black line. And they couldn't buy stockings anymore because of uh, <coughs> scarcity. So with this black pencil, they were drawing a black line at the back of their legs. To make it look like they had stockings on. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Wow. It, to make it look like they were still woman, human. Yeah. You know, there's going to be some weird, weird stuff going on. Uh, in yeah. the event of a crisis on this planet, there'll be all sorts of... Well, I'm, so I'm, maybe I'm you just need a plastic box to pretend that you have an iPhone still. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried about Black one. All Mac users are going to be. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, hysterical. Well, the ruleless guy mentioned that if you have an iPhone, actually, it might be very detrimental because if you leave the Bluetooth on or Wi-Fi on, someone smart in a car can drive around with his laptop with the Wi-Fi detection on. Mm -hmm. And it can detect where there are people who are still energy and goods. So where is he getting the power for his laptop? Um, oh, one recommended item as well. In uh, it's not in this list, but in uh, another source, is a car charger, a battery charger, a battery car battery charger. Yeah, yeah, to charge uh, electronic devices, torchlight, LED torchlight. Yeah, I think we need to modify it for that's from from Sarajevo, from Bosnia. The bombing uh -huh. of Bosnia by Bill Clinton and his friends. Um, things have moved on from it since then, and if we're talking about you know life going on and maintaining a semblance of civilization and stuff, I mean everybody has a, like I was saying a phone these days, and they may still think that there's some reason to use them. So maybe those kind of portable uh, you know chargers, you know you can get the wind up chargers for your phone, you know, so you can still uh, show people that you have an iPhone. Although there's no uh, network there, anymore. Which is a definition of civilization these days, apparently. Um, anyway, 
Um, there, there are a lot of online two, resources. Two other items, maybe, before I stop. Three other items. 63 knives and sharpening tools, 64 bicycle and uh, related equipment, and 65 a sleeping bag. Because if you have no heater, mm. a sleeping bag is a good solution to be hot during yeah. the night. Yeah, people need to get thinking about uh, you know all the things that they may need that may be useful that you don't use right now. But just you know, let your imagination go and imagine a electricity-free environment, if you want to put it that way, and imagine what would be useful. And you know, dig it out of the closet or go and get one cheap and just just have it on hand. Little things like that can make all the difference. And like I said, they can be the first step towards a new way of thinking and, uh, and making it real for yourself and you have nothing to lose. Don't be afraid that you know, you're going to turn into a prepper not just because you went and bought a few extra supplies and a sleep, sleeping bag, you know? And you know, just to work, as we're talking, I'm, I'm sitting here and thinking, look at all the propaganda about terrorism. How likely is it for you to suffer from the so-called terrorism well, and the way it's promoted? Well, there's lots of and statistics in the and exactly, and and, and look at all the rights they're removing from you. Mm-hmm. Now here we're talking about something that is way more likely, whether mm-hmm. it's just economic an economical crisis or you know whatever happens in the sky and stuff. And people aren't preparing for that. They're giving away their right, their freedom, for a false cause. So I hope that people who are listening are really thinking about it and, and realizing the amount of propaganda that goes together with terrorism and whatever they make up the threat of the day instead of actually seeing the reality. There are two topics we didn't mention. Uh, We quickly address them. A, transportation. If you have a fancy hybrid car or a car, a V8 that consumes uh, gallons and gallons of uh, um, fuel, maybe it's time to change your car and get maybe a four-wheel drive pickup diesel-powered mm-hmm. pickups were very valued. We have a former member uh, who lived in Russia during the crisis and who said those utility cars were so valuable because there's no more mass transportation, no more transportation companies. So people who are able to carry stuff from point A to point B have a strong advantage. Another in the B, the second point we didn't address is communication. When there's no more internet, no more phone, no more cell phone, having walkie-talkie or CB radios might be mm-hmm. the only or FM, AM radio with mm-hmm. a broader band range, mm-hmm. maybe the only contact you have with the external world. And that's very important to keep uh, on top of things and know what's going on in other places of the planet. Just on the, on the terrorism threat and the likelihood of you know that actually being a threat to anyone, there are many statistics on how unlikely it is that you'll be uh, killed by terrorism. But one of them is that... Uh, and uh, anybody, but in, in this case American, is more likely to be killed uh, by a toddler than they are by a terrorist. Or um, by but, lightning. Well, by lightning, yeah, everybody yeah. says that, or, or airplane cl- crashes. But in America, if you're in America, it's more likely that a child, like a three-year-old child, will come up and shoot you with a gun than a terrorist. Well, there are more people killed in America by children, like three- or four-year-old children. Uh, what about a terrorist, terrorist toddler? Terrorist toddlers, they haven't, the they haven't invented those yet. What about a terrorist, a zombie terrorist toddler? Uh, no, they're, they haven't Bring a lightning. But a watch this space. They, they, may, they may be just around the corner if the, uh, the CIA have anything to do with it. Anyway, on that uh, happy note, we will leave it there for this week. Thanks to our listeners. 
and for our chatters who as usual have been chatting away furiously and having all sorts of fun we will be back next week with a show which involves the interview of Lear Keith Lear Keith author of The Vegetarian Myth indeed so that that um, promises to be a good uh, and interesting show and uh, you know I kind of follow on from this one really um, so until then have a good one Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.